Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter 6. And we are starting a brand new series today at the church. This summer we spent four months looking at the story of the Bible in 16 verses. And so now we want to make a transition and we're going to be, for the next seven weeks, talking about the seven I am statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John. And so uh, we are in John chapter 6 today where Jesus makes the first I am statement and he says that I am the bread of life. John chapter 6. And so as, we, as you're turning there, um, I want to remind you of why John wrote the Gospel of John. And he actually tells us this uh, in John chapter 20, verse 31. Let me read this. This is why we're preaching this series this week, or this for the next few weeks. From John 20, verse 31. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So in other words, there's some things I left out. But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. That's why John wrote the Gospel of John. So that people would read it and believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in Him, they would have life in His name. And that's what our prayer is as we look at the Word today. John chapter 6, this chapter has 71 verses, I think. 71 verses. We are not going to preach all 71 verses today, okay? But we're going to do a lot of them, all right? So I'm going to read quickly. And uh, we're just going to, I'm going to tackle this as we go. All right, from John chapter 6, and before I read this, here's the statement that I want to put over this chapter, right? Keep this in mind. Jesus did not come to merely give us bread. Jesus came to be our bread. That's the statement. Big idea we want to think about this morning. Jesus did not come just to give us bread, but to be our bread. All right? So John chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 1, and we're going to begin with two miracles. And the miracles that we read about here set up Jesus' teaching about the bread of life. John chapter 6, verse 1. Now after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So let me stop there. It's the Passover. This is the time when Jews from all over the world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Which is the event in Exodus where God redeems and saves his people from Egypt. And so you've got a ton of Jewish people coming to Israel, coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And they've witnessed Jesus do lots of miracles. And anytime you've got a miracle worker, it's going to accumulate a crowd. People are going to show up to see a show. And so what we see is that Jesus actually distances himself. Instead of running to the crowds, verse 3 says that Jesus goes to the mountain. And so... In order to understand why Jesus might do this, that that there's something that's wrong about their belief. 
you have your Bible, flip over to John chapter 2. There is a constant theme in the Gospel of John of people believing, I put that in quotation marks, believing in Jesus, and yet Jesus distances himself from those people because there's something wrong with their belief. Look at John chapter 2. Jesus at the wedding of Cana turns water into wine. And he promotes these miracles and he cleanses the temple. John chapter 2 verse 23. Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this is another Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now look at verse 24 how Jesus responds. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And needed no one to bear witness about man. For Jesus himself knew what was in man. That's an amazing statement. That it is possible for you to claim that you believe in Jesus. And that Jesus would actually distance himself from you. And not entrust himself to you because you have false faith. It's a dangerous thing. To believe in the wrong Jesus. Or to believe in Jesus for the wrong reasons, right? This is how unbelief can characterize itself. Unbelief is not always saying, I don't believe in Jesus. Unbelief can be, I believe in Jesus to meet my needs. There are people in Charlottesville, Virginia, on the alt-right, who are marching in the streets with crosses around their neck, claiming that Jesus is the one pressing their agenda, and yet their racism is so far from the kingdom of God. It is anything but gospel. And it is anything but something Jesus himself would affirm. So just because we wear crosses or Christian t-shirts or believe in Jesus doesn't mean that we're part of the kingdom. And so Jesus here, he's about to feed 5,000 people. He's got a crowd coming to him, and he actually distances himself. And so before we even look at this passage today, This is why we need to examine our motives. I need to examine my motives as one of the pastors at this church. Why did I come today? Why did you come today? You see, Jesus is not interested in the person who follows him only to have their needs met and their bellies filled. Which is what Jesus is going to talk about here in just a moment. This is why, and this is is so crucial... The church is not a consumable commodity where we come and we pay our money for services rendered to us. Instead, we are a community of like-minded believers who love and serve one another just as Jesus served us. And I can say this because I live here, this is an epidemic in Rome, Georgia. I say that as a lifelong resident of this city where I've watched tons of people jump from church to church to church trying to find the place that best fits their needs. This thinking is rampant in our town and yet it is in direct conflict with the teaching of the New Testament. And so God forbid that Jesus say the same thing to us as he said to the people in John chapter 6 verse 26. Truly I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. 
In other words, Jesus says, you're not following me because you want to serve me. You're following me because you know you're going to get a free meal out of it. Free pizza at church? Yeah, I'm there. But when we have other things at the church like serving in radical kids or, or coming to a radical life group or serving at Restoration Rome or just actively making disciples in your community, don't ask me to do that. I'm not going to do that. I am going to come for pizza, though. What time does it start? And Jesus says, you're not coming because you want to follow me. You're coming because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, I'm not saying that all people do this because of unbelief. But it's easy to have a wrong belief about Jesus that, a, that causes us to have a wrong belief about the church, too. Right? If you just see Jesus in the church as a buffet or some magical Santa Claus that gives you everything you need and he's there to meet your needs... You're going to have the wrong idea, and it's going to lead to a wrong idea about the church. We, Three Rivers, is not a country club where you pay your membership for certain benefits. We are the blood-bought church of the Lord Jesus, who, and we have been adopted into his family, and this carries certain implications and expectations of all of us who are part of this community. And so, just as a reminder of our DNA, of our vision as a church. Why does the church at Three Rivers exist? This is the way we, what we believe. We use three words, up, in, and out, to describe everything that we do as being members of this church, right? Up, in, and out. Up, it begins with up. We meet and we commit to meeting together to worship as we commune with God. Everything we do with each other and with the community flows out of our communion with the Father. So we pursue him, we gather, we sing, we teach, we take communion up. And that affects the end. We don't just commit to meeting to commune with God, but we commit to regularly meeting in community with each other. So we make time in our weekly schedules to meet in smaller groups for prayer and Bible study and mutual encouragement. But then it goes further. We don't just go up to, to meet needs in. That has to flow out. And so the out, we commit to actively engaging people around us, seeking to make disciples, inviting people to be a part of our church, to follow Jesus, to be a part of our faith family. And this must be done by every member and not just the pastors who get paid to do a service. All right? And so I don't say this being angry. I say this just, I need to be reminded. This was so good for me to clarify my own understanding of the vision. Why do we meet? We meet to go up, in, and out. So this affects radical life groups. Why do we meet? We meet up to commune with God. We meet in homes so that we can, we can be in community with each other. And then we do the out to, to commit to reaching out to other people. This works the same for radical kids, right? Why do we have radical kids? Why did we choose the model so that we would, we would meet the needs of children? Why do we have workers there right now? It is an intentional co-op, right? Where parents are expected to disciple their children, but we as the church come alongside parents to equip and help them. So from the church website, the vision for our kids is the same threefold vision that Three Rivers has for the rest of the church body. And so the foundation of radical kids is the same for the foundation for church, up, in, and out. We want to prime their little hearts for communion with God. We want to prepare them to be in community with the church, and we want to equip even those little ones to collide with the culture. This is why we make deposits into their bank account. We give you a check when you dedicate your children to open up a bank account to save money so that they can go on their first mission trip when they turn 18 years old. We want to equip them to go to the nations, but we want to train them now. And so let's not pretend that this won't be difficult. 
As we look at thousands of unchurched people in Rome, Georgia, and millions of unchurched people in the nations, as we look even at the children that we have in our church, and we see how many children, good goodness, the Lord has blessed us, right? He's multiplying this church with babies, and that's a good thing. The problem is when the little ones start outnumbering the big ones, right? And so now there's a struggle. And so... I know through the summer it's been difficult and we're looking for workers, but let me encourage you with this story because I think God's put this passage in our, in our, in our faces for such a time as this. What is Jesus about to do? Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus looks, lifts up his eyes and sees the crowd coming to him. The same way you might feel overwhelmed looking at the crowd in Rome, Georgia, or the crowd of little ones and radical kids. What are we going to do? How are we going to take care of all these little ones? And here's, here's the cool thing. Jesus asks Philip a question that he already knows the answer to. Look at verse 6. Jesus said this to test him, for Jesus himself knew what he would do. Jesus already knows he's about to feed 5,000 people, which is cool. But he tests Philip. He says, Philip, where, where are we going to get food to feed all these people? Philip, where does your faith lie? Philip responds with the answer of the flesh. Merely the, the eyes of the flesh. Look at his response in verse 7. Philip answered him, 200 denarii. In other words, 200 days wages wouldn't be enough to buy enough bread for each person just to get a bite. Just to get a little bit. And Jesus says, huh, okay. You think Jesus knew that? You think Jesus knew what the budget was for the disciples? You think he had his eyes on that? You think he knew what it would cost to feed 5,000 people? Yeah. Philip, what are we going to do? Philip goes to the budget. But Andrew goes to a little boy. And Andrew responds totally different. He says, well, Jesus, there's this little boy here. He's got five loaves and two fish. And even Andrew, he doesn't have perfect faith, but he's at least got a little bit of faith to say, well, here's something. But what are they for so many? Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was much grass in the place. So the people sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, distributed to them, to those who were seated, and also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, their fill, they were satisfied. He told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled how many baskets? Twelve baskets from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And watch what Jesus does. He knows what they're thinking. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Uh-uh, you're not going to make me king because you just want a king who will fill your bellies. But here's the good news. John uses the image of bread here to show us what it means to be satisfied with Jesus. And so Jesus is this prophet. He's an all-providing king. He provides everything that these people needed and this is what the people wanted. They wanted an earthly, political Messiah to meet their needs, deliver us from Roman oppression. We don't need the Romans anymore to give us food because now we got a Messiah who can make five loaves of bread, feed 5,000. This is our man. If you had a president who could do that, he'd get voted in every time. Can multiply food. Nobody will ever go hungry. Can solve world hunger. Let's vote him in. 
Let's make him king. That's a good king. We'll never be hungry again. And Jesus says, "Uh, uh, uh-uh-uh. That's not why I came. You see, here's the deal. Jesus did not come first as king to rule men's lives. Not by me. He came to rule our lives not by being a military captain, but by being their bread. Jesus will not conquer with the power of armed forces. He will conquer with radically new appetites. And he says, I don't want you just to think about your bellies being filled and your physical needs. I want you to think deeper about your spiritual needs. Jesus will not triumph by subduing armies, but by satisfying souls. He's coming to satisfy our souls. And then we get the second miracle. This is building on top of it. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. There's, there's, There's 12 baskets left over. Remember that. We're coming back. Look at verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea got into a boat and started to cross the sea to Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. You think, right? That doesn't happen every day. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So here's what we see. Jesus distances himself from the crowds. Their bellies are filled. And they say, we like this guy. Let's make him king. He's useful. Let's take him. But Jesus did not come to be useful. Jesus came to be precious. And so he sends his disciples across the sea in the midst of this storm. And what do we see about both hunger and the storm? Hunger and the wind, both of them can kill you. And so if hunger is killing you in the wilderness, you could be saved by someone who could give you bread. If you're out in the middle of the sea, stranded in the wind and the waves, you could be saved by someone who could walk on water. And so John uses this story of Jesus walking on water to emphasize a lesson with the loaves and the fish. You ready? Got a lesson for the baskets and a lesson for the boat. Here's the baskets lesson. As we look at the ministry ahead of us, as we look at so much that needs to be done with so little, seemingly so little resources here at this church, How many baskets were left over for the disciples? Twelve, right? One for each disciple. Here's the good news. As we look at the work to be done, Three Rivers, if you join Jesus in his ministry, you will have just enough left over for you. You will not be left dissatisfied. Jesus will take care of you too. He has promised to provide for every good work that he's put before us. That's the lesson of the baskets. If you serve Jesus, there will be enough left over for you. Here's the lesson of the boat. In the moment when you think that there can be no basket for you, you get Jesus. He supplies himself and he gets into the boat with us. So the point of the story is not that Jesus will calm your storms. Did you notice that it's not even mentioned in that story? It's not mentioned that Jesus calms the storm. What's mentioned is that he gets in our boat. The thing that we need the most here is the presence of Christ in our lives. and So there's no ministry for Christ's sake. There's no storm in Christ's service where he does not supply himself. And so we set all of that up for Jesus to teach about this of being the bread of life. Here we go, ready? Verse 22. On the next day, 
the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Now remember, these are the same people that want to make him king. Where's that guy that, made, that fed our bellies? That was good bread and good fish. Where did he go? And they find him. Jesus, where were, where were you? And here's how Jesus responds, verse 26. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're following me for the wrong reasons. Now look at verse 27. This is a crucial verse to what we look at today. Jesus tells them, do not labor or do not work for the food that perishes but work for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him, God the Father has set His seal. If you are reading your Bible and you come across that verse, and Jesus says, don't work for food that's going to perish. Instead, work for food that's going to last forever, that's going to endure for eternal life. You better be asking a couple of questions. Here's the first question. What is this food, this bread that endures to eternal life? And the second question is, how do you work for this bread? What must you do to work to get this bread? Right? Jesus is saying there's a bread that perishes. That bread you just ate, it went in your belly, and it's gone. Instead, work for food that endures to eternal life. So we've got to ask those two questions. What is this bread that endures to eternal life? And second, what does it mean to work for that bread? And what Jesus is going to say, I'm going to answer the questions and then we're going to look at them. Here's how Jesus answers those questions. The first question, what is this bread that gives eternal life? This bread, Jesus says, is his body that he is going to lay down his life for them. His body is this bread. Second question. How do you work for this bread? What do you have to do? Alright. I want this bread. How do I get it? What good works must I do? And here's the irony here. The work that Jesus says. Is to not work. The true work of God is not to work. But to believe. And so Jesus' answer to how do we work for this bread is not by doing something, but by believing something. We are saved by faith, by grace alone. Okay, And Jesus is going to go into some difficult, deep teachings here in a moment about what it means for Him to be our bread. Okay, So, let's read. Verse 27, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? So what do we do to get this bread? Jesus answered them, 
This is the work of God that you do what? Believe in Him whom you sent. Don't work. The whole point is to not work, but to believe. Believe in whom He has sent. Verse 30. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? As if feeding 5,000 people and walking on water is not enough. What sign are you going to do, Jesus? And here's the, you can just see their faith is messed up, right? They don't really want to believe in him. And here's the premise, verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Alright, so what, what, is the, what is the argument that's being made here? The argument that they're making, Jesus has just done something incredibly miraculous. And it's going to reveal their blindness here. They have had, they showed up with nothing. This little, little boy had five loaves of bread and two fish. And they all ate their fill. Jesus walks on water. And then Jesus says, if you want real lasting food, believe in me and you'll have eternal life. And here's their argument. Jesus, you've done some good stuff. But Moses in the Old Testament, he gave us bread from heaven. Can you do that? Now, I know those signs were good, but can you do another sign to show us to really, if we're going to believe in you, we need to know that you're really from heaven. So could you, could you do something better than Moses? Moses made bread come from heaven. What do you got? Can you believe the audacity of these people, right? The unbelief. And yet, how many times do we say the very same thing, Right? Jesus, I believe in you, but could you please heal me from this disease? Could you please help me find a job? Could you please help me do this and help me do that and help me do this and help me do that? Jesus, I need you to do, if you'll do this for me, I'll believe in you and I'll follow you and I'll serve you. Do me a sign, Jesus. Do me, perform for me and do something to prove that you're worthy of my faith. Jesus had just done something miraculous by multiplying bread and yet he had to quietly slip away because the people wanted to make him king. But now suddenly it seems that even that was not enough. The crowds want to see more. Moses sent it from heaven. Jesus, what are you going to do? Can he top Moses? And so, of course, Jesus' ultimate point here is that just by him being there, just by standing in their presence, he was already topping Moses or anything else that had ever appeared on the earth. They were looking at the bread of life. Here's what Jesus says, verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Moses isn't the one who fed you. But my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is what? It is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to Him, Sir, give us this bread always. They're looking at Him. And He said, The Father's the one who gave Moses and His people bread. And it's the Father who sends down the true bread of life to give life to the world. And so what Jesus is saying, You're looking at the bread of life. I don't need to do something better than Moses. The fact that I'm even here is better than Moses. But you've missed it. They couldn't see it. And so maybe part of the explanation for this is they're still looking to the past. 
They're still thinking more about what Moses did once upon a time than the new thing that God was doing right before their very eyes. I'm here. And the bread that God is offering now is not physical food, it's a person. Jesus says, I am that bread. Look at verse 35. Jesus said, now they just asked, sir, give us this bread. This bread sounds really good. The Father's got more bread in heaven, some bread that will give us eternal life. Oh boy, oh goody, where is it? And you've got to think Jesus is starting to get sarcastic, right? Verse 35, I am the bread of life. It's me. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. I want to say something here that's going to seem almost anti-Jesus. But it's true. Verse 36, here's what Jesus is saying. You're not going to believe this. I already know you're not going to believe this. And I'm going to explain why you don't believe this. But here's the, cool, here's the weird thing. Jesus is offering this living bread to people that he knows are never going to receive it. The reason I know this is if you read the end of the chapter, it says that Jesus knew what was in the heart of man. This chapter begins with 5,000 people following Jesus, guess how many it ends with? Eleven. Every person standing here listening to Jesus' teaching walked away from him. What's amazing is that Jesus doesn't try to get them back. Jesus is not going to entrust himself to people who follow him for the wrong reasons. We're told that the story ends with twelve people standing there and one of them is a devil. There's only eleven people who stuck with Jesus after this. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, wait, 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 I didn't really mean that. I was just kidding. I, guys, guys, I really want you to be at my church. Please come back. I didn't mean it. Uh, listen, I, I, don't want, I don't mean to be offensive. He says, no, you're not going to believe this. Because you're hard-hearted and you're stubborn. And yet, this is how we need to speak to the world, okay? Regardless of people's response to the gospel, we announce the global offer that God is offering to people. If you will trust in this living bread, he will give you life. And what we're going to find here is that God is sovereign in salvation. Jesus is sovereign even over the rebellion of people. And yet every man is responsible for their reaction to the gospel. Alright, so let's read. Why did these people turn away? Here's Jesus' answer. Verse 36, I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. Here it is, bombshell, ready? About to get theological. Jesus says, verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus is making five profound theological statements here. And we have to deal with them, okay? Whether we agree with Jesus or not, we have, to, we have to conform our understanding of God to the Scriptures. And here's what Jesus says, beginning with verse 37. He says, you guys aren't coming to me. But I tell you, there are some who will come. All that the Father gives to me 
will come to me. This is what's known in theology as the doctrine of election. And so I want to make five statements Jesus is making here. The first statement Jesus says about why we come to him as, our, as the living bread. The first, God gives his chosen ones to Jesus. God does not wait for his chosen ones to come to Jesus. If he did, they would never come. Instead, he gives them to Jesus. This is what happens in pre-existent eternity. We read about it in Ephesians chapter 1. That before the foundation of the world, God chose us in Christ and predestined us for adoption as sons. This was something that was done before we were ever born. It was by God's mercy. It was purely by God's grace. Jesus says that the Father, at some point in pre-existent eternity gave his people to the Son. Now, we don't have to understand exactly how this works. We just have to take Jesus at his word in verse 37, that all that the Father gives me will come to me. So the first thing that happens is that the Father gives his people to the Son. The second thing that happens is that because God gives them to Jesus, they will come to Jesus. This is good news for us as we preach the gospel that there are some who will hear the gospel and they will believe it. And you can't stop them if you tried because the Father gives them to the Son and He says they will come to me. This gives us hope for evangelism. It gives us hope for missions. Verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So God gives his chosen ones to Jesus. Second, because God gives them to Jesus, they come to Jesus. That means when we came to Christ, it was God who brought us by grace. We were dead and yet he made us alive. When you trusted in Christ, it was God opening your heart. From Acts chapter 16, verse 14. This is why I named my daughter Lydia. Because it was Lydia that God opened her heart to understand the gospel. If God doesn't open our hearts to understand, we will never understand. The fact that you're even here today listening and receiving this and believing and trusting and treasuring in Jesus is all a work of grace by God Himself to open your hearts and your minds to understand. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4 through 6. It was God opening our eyes when the, dark, the, the present darkness and the ruler of this world had blinded our eyes to the light of the gospel. And yet when we come to Jesus, we come freely with all of our resistance overcome. Let me say that again. When you came to Jesus, you came freely. God didn't have to make you come. You wanted to come. It's just that God gave you the desire and he took out your heart of stone and he put in a heart of flesh. You can read about this in Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 37. He takes out a heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. He says, I will put my spirit within you. I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will give you a new nature. You will follow me and I will do it not for your sake, but for my great name's sake. Salvation is all about the work of God and it's demonstrating the glory of God that he can take dead people who would never come to him who were dead and he raises them to life and then they freely come because they want to and the only reason they want to is because God has mercifully drawn them to himself. This is why Jesus is going to say in verse 44 you can't come to, the, to me unless the Father who sent me draws you. This is all of grace. That means there's no room for boasting, Three Rivers. The fact that you taste bread today, you taste that heavenly bread, and it tastes sweet to you, it is because God has given you new taste buds. He's given you a desire. So the Father gives to the Son. Because God gives them to the Son, they come to Jesus. Here's the third thing. 
Those who are given to Jesus and who come to Jesus are powerfully and eternally kept by Jesus. In other words, none are lost. Let's read the flow of thinking. Verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You'll never be lost. If you come to Jesus, He will not lose you. Verse 39, this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. None are lost. The Father is the one who sets us apart by grace. It's the Son who purchases our redemption. And it's the Spirit who brings us to salvation through the preaching of the gospel. Fourth thing that happens. So the Father gives His people to the Son and trusts them to Him. Because God gives them to Jesus, they will come. Those who are given to Jesus and who come to Jesus will not be lost. Fourth, Jesus will raise us from the dead on the last day. Because we come to Jesus, He says, I will raise them on the last day. Verse 39. And finally, the unshakable foundation of God's work here is His sovereign will. I want you to see how many times... It says this, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I would lose nothing of all that He has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father. Three times the will of God is mentioned. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. This is all about the work of God. The Father gives us to the Son. The Son, we come to the Son as He dies in our place. When we come to Him, we are never lost. And when we are never lost, that means when we die, we're raised up on the last day. And all of this is according to the perfect will of God. And I want you to see something here. God does not fail God does not try to make us savable. He doesn't attempt to save us. He doesn't try his hardest. He really, truly saves. He doesn't fail. What should this do for us? It should give us hope. So maybe you're asking the question, how can I know if I'm one of God's chosen children? How do I know? This is scary to me. How do I know if if I'm, I'm truly in the faith? Here's the simple answer. Verse 35, Jesus Jesus has an answer for you. If you're sitting there wondering, what about me? How do I know if I'm in the faith? How do I know if I've truly been saved? How do I know if the Father has given me to the Son so that I'll never be lost? Here's the answer, verse 35. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's your answer. How do you know? It's because you've come to Jesus and you've treasured Jesus. Not just that Jesus is Lord and not just that He's your Savior, but He is your precious treasure. Are you coming to Jesus as your bread of life? Not the bread that will satisfy you today and be gone tomorrow, but are you coming to Jesus ultimately to have your soul satisfied in Him? If that's your goal, if that's your desire, if Jesus is your treasure, then that is the perfect, greatest evidence that the Father has given you to the Son and you will never be lost. When you trust in Jesus, is He precious to you? Is He sweet to you? If so, yes, You belong to Him, and He will raise you up on the last day. Now, I know 
that there are people who don't believe this. I get it. That's okay. My recommendation is to read the scripture and come to your conclusion. But that, I don't know anywhere, other, anywhere, any way to read the Bible other than how Jesus just said it. But here's how people respond to it. They grumble. You know how I know they grumble? It's because they grumbled back then, right? If, you're, if they grumble back then, they're going to grumble even today. This is why people struggle. I don't like the fact that God's in control. But I don't understand who else you would want to be in control other than God, right? I don't want it to be up to me because if it's up to me, I'm never coming. If it had been up to me, I would have never followed Jesus. Ever. Ever. But here's what people do. They grumble. And they grumble because Jesus said, I'm the bread. They don't like this, right? Look at verse 41. Here's what we're going to see. Skeptical grumbling, grumbling and sovereign grace. Ready? Verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. If you think that you can just walk up to Jesus and say, I think I'm going to trust in Jesus today and believe in him, you're wrong. Jesus says you're not coming because you're dead in your sin and you don't desire it. Until you desire Jesus, you will never come to Jesus. And the only way that you will desire Jesus is for the Father to draw you. I want you to think back on your own salvation. I've done this before, but isn't it good just to think back in your own life of how you came to faith in Christ Maybe a parent shared the gospel. Maybe you grew up in the church. Maybe you, you didn't grow up in the church and a friend just shared the gospel with you. Let me ask you, why did you believe? And you may say, well, it's because I heard. Heard the gospel. But why did you hear it? Why, what made you believe it? Well, it's because someone came and preached it to you. But why did those people preach it to you? It's because God sent them. Why did God send them? Because he's drawing you. And by the way, this drawing of the Father does not fail. That drawing is the same word that's going to be used later in John when Jesus says, put your net on the other side of the boat and draw in fish. And they draw in 243 fish and not one of them is lost. This is the drawing of a fisherman drawing in his people. He's drawing us in. And the way I know that none will be lost, he says, the person that I draw will also be the one that I raise up on the last day. This is perfect work of the Father, all right? And so, Jesus is clear. He says, you want to grumble? You can't even come unless the Father's drawing you. But then, Jesus isn't taking his foot off the pedal. He goes even further, verse 45. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So now this hearing and learning from the Father is the same thing of drawing. The way the Father draws is that we learn and we're taught from the Word. That's how God draws, through His Word. Truly I say to you, verse 47, Truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. Why are you trusting in the, mo in the bread Moses provided? Those people all died verse 50 this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die this is good bread 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So now Jesus is taking it even further. He says this bread isn't physical bread. It's actually my body that I'm going to lay down for you. So these people are grumbling. They're grumbling. They say, I don't like this. And yet Jesus' point here is that everyone in Israel who ate that bread that you're so desperate to get to, all of them died. But if you will look at me as heavenly bread and you'll see that my flesh and my blood that was broken and shed for you on the cross is the true bread. If you will eat that bread, you'll live forever. So now we gotta, we got to figure out what he means. Because now, as if they weren't offended enough, now it sounds like Jesus is talking about cannibalism, Right? What does he mean, eat flesh and drink blood? It was weird enough talking about himself being bread, but now he says he's flesh and blood. What? This is not church growth strategies, right? Like if you want, if you want people to come to your church, it would not be good for me to stand up here and say, eat me, right? It's just weird. But that seems to be what Jesus is saying. Verse 52. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You see how blind they are, right? They're so blind, they don't understand what Jesus is saying. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you, I mean, he's just not holding back, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. So now let's, let's make some connections here. What did Jesus say? Do not work for food that perishes, but work for food that endures to eternal life. And what did we say is the food? What is the bread? It's Jesus, right? It's his body. And what did it mean to work for that bread? What did work equal? Work really meant believe, right? Believe in his death. Believe in him. Trust in him. So now if we take that a step further, what does it mean when Jesus says, eat my flesh and drink my blood? Does he mean that physically? No, he goes back and he's talking about believing. By eating Jesus' blood, body and drinking of his blood, what he's saying is, believe in my sacrificial, atoning, substitutionary death in your place. And if you'll put my, your faith in me, and you will take me as your own, the same way you would eat bread to go into you to satisfy your belly, take me into your life by faith, and I will give you eternal life. Believe in me. Here's the good news. Not only will I be in you, but you will also be in me. I will abide in you. You will abide in me. So eating of blood or eating flesh, drinking blood is the same thing as believing in Jesus as the only sacrifice to take away your sins. That's what it means to trust in him and to eat this bread of life. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things, or rut row, in the synagogue in Capernaum. 
He said it with all the religious leaders and all the Jews. And when did he say it? Do you remember what time of year it was? Remember? Passover. Passover. Do you know what the Jews did at Passover? They celebrated the Passover in Exodus when the people would keep that little lamb in their house and they would sacrifice it. And what would they do with the lamb? They would eat it, right? To appropriate the sacrifice to their own life. And every year the Jewish people would do that. They would sacrifice animals and they would eat the sacrifice. This is why Jesus, when he institutes the Lord's Supper at the new, in the New Covenant, says this is the blood of the New Covenant. And I am the Passover lamb, right? So this is my body. This is my blood. So in the same way, when we take the Lord's Supper, we are actually eating the sacrifice that's going to take away our sin. So I want to ask you, have you truly eaten of this bread? Have you truly taken Jesus as the true bread of life? Are you truly satisfied in Him and in Him alone? We don't have time to go through the rest of the chapter, but the Scripture tells us that all 5,000 people left. And there was only 12, and one of them was a devil. And Jesus looks at the other disciples, and He says, Peter, do you want to go too? Everyone else is leaving. There's the door. I'm not stopping you. And Peter has great words of wisdom here. Peter looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, where, where else can we go? You're the only one who has words of eternal life. Do you believe that today? Does that stir your heart? That Jesus is your true bread? Students, what you're going to need in college more than anything this year is for Jesus to be your bread. It's for Jesus to be your true satisfaction. Church, this is what we need more than anything else. As we serve Christ together here in this body, we need Jesus to be our ultimate treasure. And we're going to celebrate that here at the table here in just a moment. Ryan, if you want to go ahead and come on up. Every week at Three Rivers, we take the Lord's Supper. And we do this to remind ourselves of the gospel. We do this to remind ourselves every week that Jesus is our bread. That his body and his blood was shed for us in our place. So that by faith in him, God no longer holds our sin against us. But he counts us righteous in Christ. And he promises to take away our sin for those who come to him. And so... I thought of no better application of what Jesus says to eat my flesh and drink my blood than for us to take communion here at the end. Now, even if you're not a member here at Three Rivers, if you have repented of your sin and you are putting your faith in Jesus, Jesus alone, and you would say, Jesus is my bread of life and I want to trust in Him. Maybe you're not even a Christian today. And for the first time, you have, you have heard this and your heart has been pierced, and the Father is drawing you to the Son. And today, maybe for the first time, you say, you know what? I'm, I'm not a Christian, but I want Jesus as my bread of life. I want to live forever. I want to be truly satisfied in Him. I can't think of any other way, any better way for you to respond to the gospel and repentance and belief than to come to the table. And if you do that for the first time, would you tell one of us, me or Emmett, at the end of the service, we'd love to baptize you and celebrate that, but... 
for most of us, we're Christians, and, and we want to celebrate Jesus as our bread, okay? And so here's what we're going to do. Um, Ryan's going to play. In just a moment, I want you to stand. You can come through the center aisle, come up to one of the tables, take a piece of bread, take a cup, return to your seat through the outer aisles, and in just a moment, we'll take those together, all right? If Jesus is your bread, come. This is not my table. This is his table. Come and eat and drink and live. Jesus says here in John 6, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true blood, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I abide in him. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Today, we trust in Christ that he has graciously drawn us to Jesus. He has graciously, graciously brought us to salvation. He's graciously given us his life, shedding his blood, giving, us, giving up of his body so that we might be saved. And let us eat and drink today to the glory of God that we may live forever and that we abide in him. Let's eat and drink, church. Now, and it says on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he offered the Lord's Supper and instituted the new covenant. It says after they had eaten and they had drank, after the meal was over, they sang a hymn. And so we're going to sing, all right? The proper response to the gospel for Christians is always worship. It ought to stir your heart, make you want to sing right now, okay? And so we're going to respond to the word. If you maybe for the first time repented and, and trusted in Jesus, um, after this service is over, I would love to speak with you. Um, Emmett would love to speak with you. would love to talk to you a little bit more about how, how you might can get plugged in at a church and follow Christ as a, as, a, as a follower of him, all right? And so now we're going to worship. We're going to sing together. Take joy, church, that your sin is forgiven and that God's wrath no longer abides on you, all right? Let's stand and let's sing in response to the gospel.